Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. It's true. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. But you know this is true because you already saw, America, the title of this. And this is an interview, a very special, a very special episode where we're going to learn lessons. And it's an interview with one of the writers I am most jealous of in his journalistic work, Matthew Cottonetti. Our friend, I'll go ahead and speak for you and call him your friend. Our friend, my colleague here at the American Enterprise Institute, and one of the best columnists working today, you you hit more, you throw more horseshoes on the peg in a year than almost anybody, and truly, truly a great writer who produced a wonderful book called The Right, A Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. Welcome, Matthew Continetti to Ink Stained Wretches. Thank you, Chris, and thank you for that very generous introduction. It's a fact. And you can, Eliana, you back me up on this. His columns the, the are tight, right? With me, every once in a while, I don't know about you, me, when I write a column, occasionally you're just like... Notice Eliana's strategic no, no. silence. Uh, yes. I was just waiting because Matthew is friend, mentor, yeah, and I succeeded Matthew at the Washington Free Beacon, so I had like the burden of carrying on the Matthew legacy and not selling it too much with my, you know, whatever it is that I do. But whenever I am asked, so you know, people will because I spent some time in the mainstream media, people will reach out to me and be like, you know, who understands conservatives? Who can write about conservatism? Like, who actually talks to these zoo animals and could you know write about them for us and won't you know like be you know, rude and do embarrassing things every time. I'm like, Matt Continetti, Matt Continetti, Matt Continetti. Have to talk to Matt Continetti. So thank you, Matt. And yet they never call. Um, (laughs) You know, you know, Matt, it might be that they're not actually interested in finding that person. I have a sneaking suspicion. Amazingly so. I have a sneaking suspicion. You may want to quit ahead here. You've gotten the most lavish praise packed into I feel like I have nothing left to do. You should probably walk. Please so, praise me more. Yeah, and I'll just listen. Well, it'd be like remember the Trump cabinet meeting where he gave everybody the opportunity to go around the well. table, say say something good. What about nobody me. understands is that Matt Matt. Here's what I'll say that you can uh, that you can put on like your AEI bio page is like the button next to Matt praise is that Matt is actually at his best when he writes about Democrats, not about Republicans. Yeah, no, that's the, and the political scene in general. So the reason I asked you to come and talk to us is. It's throughout this great book and a very useful. Oh, we have the same blur. We have the same people blurb our back jacket. Look at that, <laughs> George Will and Yuval Levin. The book is history of the American right, and you choose the word right rather than conservatism, because not everybody on the right's a conservative, and it and it's not the Republican Party, but it's the right, and you can't tell the story of the right without talking about the rights relationship with the press. I would posit that the right hates the press even more than they hate the left, right? Or at least they think of them as the same thing. Frame for us, how do you see the role of the anti-press sentiment 
on the right and how it has shaped the movement? Well, you know, it's uh, there from the beginning in the opening uh, editorial of the first National Review back in 1955, William F. Buckley Jr., the founder of National Review, makes some sarcastic comments about uh, liberal media figures, a columnist named Jimmy Weschler, who was uh, prominent in the mid-50s. And there was always kind of a critique of liberal spokesmen in the media who were seen by the American conservative movement as being you know, reflexively pro-New Deal, ref- reflexively pro-containment, and the conservatives opposed both of those things. So they were a kind of anti. Containment being the approach to the Soviet Union of holding it at its border right. and not the previous model, which sounded cooler, which was rollback. Rollback was the conservative model, right? That's right. But I think the animus toward the press really started in 1964 when Barry Goldwater wins the Republican nomination. He's the first conservative to win the Republican nomination in about 30 years. And Goldwater is presenting views that are, you know, kind of outside the consensus in American politics and society at the time, which is pro-New Deal, pro-civil rights, and pro-kind of containment toward the Soviet Union. And so the press comes after Goldwater like hound dogs, and they they parrot a lot of the attacks that LBJ is making, President Lyndon Johnson is making against his challenger Goldwater, saying that Goldwater is psychologically unstable, yep. calling him an extremist, calling him not just an affiliate of the extremist John Birch Society, but a fascist. Which is hard to do, I would say. It would be very hard to be both a conservative and a fascist at the same time. It would be it would be tough, but anyway. And so the conservatives just really begin attacking the press. There are books that are attacking the press treatment of Goldwater. The the sense that the liberal media, which at that time really is just based in New York City, is unrepresentative of the American people and hostile to American conservatism is really ingrained in 1964. And then this critique just kind of develops over the ensuing years, um, especially a few years later in 1969. At this point, Republicans have recaptured the presidency under President Nixon, who was not a conservative, but he understands kind of the power of the media critique. We can understand probably everything about the period you're talking about in, in one person who coined the phrase, the nattering nabobs of negativity, former uh, Maryland governor, vice, uh, by the way, who is the only vice president to resign in disgrace. Is that true? Eliana, you know, you re- you went to Yale, you know things. Any other vice president? Oh, that's in like disgrace? the worst statement that could ever be. No, you know stuff. I can't think of another in the 20th century. <clears throat> All right, there we go. We'll take that. The, what, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Spiro Agnew. Spiro T. Agnew. Call him Ted. <laughs> Nixon's vice president he ran and his whole purpose in the campaign was to go fight with the press he was like a proto-trump right yeah in the campaign it's a little bit different he kind of got on nixon's radar because he had denounced the civil rights leadership for basically legitimizing the uh, riots that took place after the martin luther king assassination right and so he was very hard on the civil rights leadership and uh nixon thought this would be a great um, addition to the ticket to represent Nixon's commitment to law and order. So that's really what he stressed during the campaign. Once he gets into office, Nixon uh, comes under a huge amount of pressure 
from the public and from the press over his bombing campaign in Vietnam in his first year. So Nixon's idea was that in order to extricate America from Vietnam, you actually had to be much harsher. Operation Uh, linebacker, linebacker one and two. And these, these punitive measures and the expansion of the war, bombing, you know, Viet Cong supply chains in Laos and Cambodia, huge protests. And so Nixon, that's when Nixon gives his famous silent majority speech. And then Agnew comes along and starts attacking the press as being the, you know, the negative, as being this elite self-selected group of people who determine what Americans read and, and see on the television and really starts hitting that hard. And those speeches are written, I guess Agnew gets some credit maybe, but they're written by William Sapphire, who goes on to become a New York Times columnist, and Pat Buchanan, yep. who also goes on to be a syndicated mm-hmm. columnist and media figure. Funny that they... <laughs> the, the, the critics of the media become hugely prominent media figures later in life. Well, and, and Eliana and I were talking about this before you arrived. This phenomenon, so in the old days, we'll say, let's, let's say 1996, Fox News launches, the internet becomes commonplace. Internet access becomes commonplace in the United States. That in prior to that, Republicans hated the press but they had to be part of the press, right? That, it, that was the only game in town. So if you were Buckley or Sapphire or whomever, you had to go to where they were. National Review had got so much attention because I'm not saying there weren't other conservative magazines, but it was the closest thing to a mainstream heavy hitter publication that you found on the right. Otherwise, you had to go get your wins in the mainstream. Now, and I, I don't want to skip past that discussion, but now... And Eliana, you'd agree, you don't find a lot of young people who want to go into journalism from the conservative side. I think it's because of all the vilification, much of it deserved. You mean mainstream journalism? Or any journalism, right? Even at the Free Beacon, even at wherever, that there is, there is not a lot. The, I think mainstream journalism rejects conservatives and gatekeeps conservatives out to a substantial degree. There's also self-selection, right? One of the reasons that academia and journalism have so few conservatives in it is after we get past the gatekeeping part is the part where these are not institutions that are respected on the right. These are not things where people would, if you live in Oklahoma, you would be proud to say that your son has gone into the oil and natural gas business. But if you said, good news, he's moving to Washington, D.C., where he's going to cover going to cover inter- issues of intersectionality for the Washington Post. Sure. That would not be a brag in Telequa. Sure. Yeah. Well, of course, the media has changed so much, too. The very composition of the media, you know, in this period that we've been discussing, the 60s and the 70s, r- working in the newspaper business was still pretty much a working class profession. You know, the Mike Royko model of, you know, you go to the bar and you tell what the rat face is talking about that day. That's your column, you know, and you write five columns, six columns a week. You know, I I mean, every single day you have your 700 words. You know, my heroes are figures like Jack Germond, right? The Baltimore Sun political correspondent who, you know, his title of his memoir, you know, fat man in the middle seat, right? Because he's just going all around the country and he's no conservative, far from it. But he's going around the country and he's he is covering horse race politics. And he gets to know these politicians. You know, his conservative counterpart and his close friend, another hero of mine, is Robert Novak, right? Yep. The Prince of Darkness. Same thing. Hard drinking, hard working, 
guys who are not, you know, they're, they're interested in kind of like the machinery of politics and the game of politics. They're not interested in kind of the larger, you know, philosophical or ideological questions about politics, which I think is truer of people attracted to journalism today. Yes. On both sides, you know, and so what, like you say, like, I, I mean, I know, I don't know how Eliana feels. I mean, I, while I was running the Free Beacon, I would have plenty of people who are interested in, in working for the Free Beacon and being part of the conservative media infrastructure, which, as you say, really begins building in the 1990s. But they weren't interested in reporting. I had to find the ones who were actually yep. interested in kind of trying to do what Germond or Novak or the great investigative reporters did, except for a conservative outlet yeah. instead of a liberal one. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I, I actually think conservatives are, I think they are interested in being a part of, in, in doing media and journalism. I think there's a couple things. Like, I think that they, they show up and one, like, they don't know how to report. First of all, none of them can write. And then there's like a small but that's subset. Just true. That's true. Of it. But there's a small subset who are interested in learning how to and a much larger subset who are not interested at all in learning how to write and report and who like, you know, think they know how to think they know how to do something and are like, you know, I'm going to succeed without learning the tools of the trade. And I would, I would just add to that, like the mechanics of Internet journalism. Yeah. Yes. The click hunting. Yes. Means that they actually don't need to learn how to write right. a report. Right. All they need to do is put a, you know. 200 words together and then the editor slaps a headline on it that is Gets search, search engine optimized and yeah. then they put an image that people want to click on and and so that's kind of that that has to do with big structural changes in journalism yes. that then affect conservatives you know in different ways than they say affect the Washington Post which you know you guys do the whole program on it that clearly <laughs> is affected by it as well but it's diff- it's kind of different it's kind of the talent pool you know I just say kind of this. Maybe start from this place. Your your point about National Review being kind of the only place to go is very true. National Review has always been the largest circulation opinion magazine in the country, but its circulation at its height was you know in the mid to high hundred thousands. Okay, yeah. it it was originally launched as a weekly in 1955. Pretty soon they find out that they don't have the finances to continue to operate it as weekly. So for many decades, it's a bi-weekly magazine with a bi- also a bi-weekly insert that yep. they called the bulletin. Yes, right? I remember. Basically a newsletter. Eventually the bulletin's kind of cut, and it's just a bi-weekly. Other than that, you have Human Events magazine, which is a newsletter. It comes out weekly, very interested in kind of what's going on Capitol Hill, kind of the organizational aspects of movement. And who is Human Events? Well, that was a series of guys, most prominent of whom in the original founding of Human Events was Henry Regnery. Oh, right, right, right. It. It's founded in 1944. And so is that a more paleocon? Is that is that is that my correct understanding? It, yeah, I mean, not to waste time with definitions or anything, but yeah, it's it more old right, very you know, very kind of in the Robert Taft tradition yeah, yeah. of being suspicious of foreign entanglements, suspicious of alliances. Very anti-New Deal, anti-government intervention in the economy. That's what kind of where they come from. By the by the way, just as an aside, Eliana, I know you appreciated this too. There's so many great characters that come through in your book. It's appropriate Ronald Reagan is on the cover because that's the it's it is in many ways the story of how you get to Ronald Reagan. The 
first conservative president since Calvin Coolidge and about how all of that happened. But the Taft part of it is very interesting. And I underappreciated, I tend to underappreciate Taft and his importance in the Republican Party and his struggle with Goldwater and how Goldwater was really perceived and all of that jazz. Really interesting, really good. You you really bring the characters out in the book. Thank you. What was the other one, though? The American Conservative, which is still around, was a guy who used to appear on Buckley's show. What was his name? Well, the American Conservative magazine that's yeah. still out? Well, that's founded in 2002. What's yeah. the other one? It's based in Indiana. Oh, well, that's the American Spectator. The American Spectator. Yeah, which I'm is sorry, founded American in Spectator. 1967 by Bob Turrell. Yes. It's founded on the campus of the University of Indiana, Bloomington. Turrell was a athlete. He was actually a very, very good swimmer who kind of fell under the spell of one of his history professors, a man named Robert Farrell, who was a kind of Truman Democrat, a Cold War liberal. And Terrell also idolized H.L. Mencken for whatever reason. Oh, we just talked about uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, my my reverence for H.L. Mencken in the previous episode. Yeah. And Mencken was a conservative attitude. Kind of libertarian, yeah. anti-statist uh, conservative. And so Terrell starts a campus magazine in 1967 called The Alternative. And figures like Buckley and Irving Kristol, who are prominent at that point, they say, hey, this is a real collection of talent. Terrell... Becomes, it becomes a monthly. It later changes its name to the American Spectator. And it becomes a, a, it's, a it's the only conservative monthly for a long time, mm-hmm. right? And it becomes a place that's for the neoconservatives, the kind of the Cold War liberals who are leaving the Democratic Party and slowly becoming Republican, to kind of share column inches with the National Review Buckley mm-hmm. types. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of, in its inception, it's a kind of a literary cultural magazine yeah. and foreign policy. And it moves to Washington, D.C. in 1985. And so when does the Weekly Standard arrive? Standard arrives. The Weekly Standard magazine arrives a decade later in 1995. And I started working there in 2003. That's a very long way of saying I love this stuff. I love media <laughs> history and, and political history. But <clears throat> that's a very long way of saying that until the mid-1990s, there was not a lot, right? If you got a guy who's coming at you from Bloomington, and <laughs> by the way, to tell you what a huge nerd I am, I love to watch old firing line episodes. Sure. Oh my gosh, I love to watch old firing line episodes on YouTube. And and Tyrrell would come on mm-hmm. with Buckley and, and be sort of, Buckley would do a panel and he'd have some Democrat on or some liberal on and have Tyrrell on. And Tyrrell's suits in the 70s, baby, are... Magnifique. He was happening. He's a happening guy. He's he, apparently he's working on his memoirs. I want to. I want to read. I want to read it because a guy who had a suit like that has has tales to tell. He has. Oh, tale, yeah. He has tales to tell, and probably a waterbed. Well, the thing about the American Spectator and actually National Review too was that it had a sense of humor. Yes. And so Terrell would write, you know, a column every month called "The Continuing Crisis." Yes. And just making fun of, of goings on in the country. And then the, the back page was always called Assorted Wisdom, and it was just kind of a collection each month of the, of the most asinine quotes that liberals had made. And then it was known, too, for bringing P.J. O'Rourke, the, yes. the humorist, into kind of the conservative media world, you know, because P.J. got his start at National Lampoon and then Rolling Stone. And is that where he landed after Rolling Stone? He, or started, contribu- he started contributing, yeah, as a freelance to the to the spectator in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. He wrote a 
fantastic review of Lee Iacocca's memoir, which Lee Iacocca was a very funny figure. You know, yes, it was chairman of Chrysler. Yes. Yeah. Just kind of a bizarre historical interlude. But so they had a sense of humor about it, you know. And and they also were and this was very true of the standard also, erudite. Wanted to be yeah. learned, wanted and it, the the energy from a standard and the spectator and national review all was yes there was uh, there was humor in it and didn't take themselves too seriously. My favorite part of the old National Review was William F. Buckley's responses to readers, <laughs> which was they once published a compendium of his responses under the title "Cancel, Cancel Your, Your Own, own GD Subscription." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and what was the name of the woman who wrote Florence Florence King? magnificently yes. funny, Southern, amazing writer. So the humor part in the not taking itself too seriously, but also opera critics, also right. high culture, also doing all of that stuff. Why did that die? Well, and National, Not that National Review doesn't still do that. All, praise be upon Jay Nordlinger and his excellent writing. And you can find all that stuff. Talk about why that cool energy... Sure. Dissipated. Well, for there are a few reasons. One, I'd say conservatism kind of changed. Yeah. Especially with the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. Peter O'Rourke gave a great speech to the 25th anniversary dinner of the American Spectator that year. And he was like, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Clinton may be bad for the country, but he's meat on our table. Like, <laughs> he, he is going to serve us up a so lot of a, material. Like, like the many in the mainstream and on the left felt about Donald Trump. Yeah. And Tyrrell became very interested in in investigating who the president who he called boy clinton and the american spectator kind of took a turn toward investigative journalism there in the clinton years which ended up actually resulting in one of its first bankruptcies <laughs> uh, there was there've been a few in any case um, oh. it had to find new ownership at by the end of the 1990s and so it kind of it became more and more interested in investigating clinton the trooper gate and this was um, also the washington times Founded by the Unification Church. 1982. In 1982. I should just take you with me everywhere I go because you remember all of the things that I want to remember. But that the Washington Times in the 90s, Clinton investigation was a mainstay, right? They oh, opened yeah. well, a bureau. There's they a, opened uh, a Little Rock And, bureau. you know, the other major conservative media outlet were the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal beginning in the 1970s. And the journal's editorials were always investigating Clinton. There's a famous... Famous to me anyway, weekly standard parody of the Wall Street Journal editorial from that time, which the headline is, who is Sox? You know, and it goes into the two-column investigation to Sox see, the that's, Cat. That's very funny, and it's poking fun at another conservative outlet, but gently, and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. We also shouldn't uh, forget Richard Mellon Scaife and the founding of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, right. which was also Clinton crazy. Right. And and did all of that. So, so the Clinton Clinton hatred really kind of took up a lot of space in the media on the right during the 1990s. The other thing that changed, though, was I just think the news business, the the collapse of print journalism, the changing economics of the news business, the fact that your ad pages would go down, you know, from 20 to zero, and beginning in the early 21st century. That just means like these content delivery systems of a magazine are very hard to produce. Yeah. And they're very hard to, to, to kind of collate. And that package that you used to get 
becomes rarer and rarer. The Spectator kind of shifts from print, you know, I think around 2012 maybe. The Weekly Standard is kind of killed by its owner in 2018. And National Review, of course, is still around, but, you know, it's, it's not as thick as it used to be, right? And incidentally, though, to your, to your larger point, the, one of the most popular features of any issue of National Review is Rob Long's column. The Long the, View, baby. The, the humor columns. <clears throat> his, his stuff on, did you ever read his, I feel like everybody in this room is looking at me like I'm the oldest person, it's 46, I'm the oldest person who's ever been alive. I'm like, remember back in 88? But You are, in fact, the oldest person. I know, I know, room, I know, yeah. I know, in the, in the room. you got five years on me. But Rob Long used to do, used to do letters from Al Gore from the desk oh, of Al hilarious. Gore. His he inhabited the persona of Al Gore and built a rich and textured wor- world in these letters from Al. Just mwah. you know, I'm the the way that I used to think about the Weekly Standard anyway was that I think it was Nina Easton, the journalist for the Los Angeles Times, who wrote a book featuring the founder of the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal who said that the sensibility of the Weekly Standard was Mad Magazine meets Foreign Affairs. And I read that shortly after I joined the magazine and thought that was a perfect description of what, John, of what John we John is, right, is the right guy. If that's what you're going right. for, they had the right, they uh, had that's, the right You guy. know, it may have actually been another, I may have been confusing that. It may be a description of John's yeah. uh, it's a, uh, sensibility. And, you know, of course, John Podhorst helped found the, co-founded the Weekly yeah. Standard and now is the editor of Commentary. And I think does puts a lot of effort into kind of bringing that sensibility around and commentary you know is, is doing well because it's still a monthly magazine and but it's also yes. adjusted to the new information age where you know they have put out their daily podcast and have tons of fans for that news for jews and others and for the, yeah, and, it's and less the and whole, less yes, news for jews exactly it's, it's more just the news for conservatives and it's a great magazine and uh, i gotta look elsewhere for the news for jews yes exactly where are we it? as gentiles yeah. eliana going to find the news for jews that we need where are we going <laughs> tablet i mean what's left <laughs> the beacon, free the beacon, beacon, free beacon. Come that's on. where we can go. So, let's move briskly ahead to all my questions are briskly ahead to 2016. Sure, and the world that was built in the 1990s with Fox at the center of it, the fading intellectual magazine component, and talk radio, right, have come to dominate. By the end of the 20th century, is it fair to say? Fox and talk radio have become the do- and Rush Limbaugh and 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 his imitators, his many imitators, have become the mainstream on the right. That's the media mainstream for the right. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely talk radio. I mean, so when Limbaugh begins national syndication in the late 1980s, it's a huge event. He is the voice of the American right throughout the 1990s. He has massive audiences. Fox, it's interesting. Fox was founded in 1996. Um, it gets a big Pickup in 1998, the show Special Report that I appear on from time to time. Um, At the time with Brit Hume. It's is founded in 1998 uh, to be a nightly newscast about the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Yes. Right? Um, and it continues to this day. But the truth is, Fox's ratings really didn't take off until after 9-11. Yeah. And so beginning after 9-11, and their Fox coverage of 9-11, I, I watched it at the time, it was incredible. And so... So, yeah, so talk radio for sure. Fox really picks up uh, during George W. Bush's uh, presidency, but they remain today. I think the turning point was around 9-11 is when they overtook CNN. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think, I th- and like I say, I think it was their coverage of, of the war on terrorism yeah. and everything yep. that, 
that really just put them ahead. John Scott, I will always remember and always uh, have love for John Scott for the way he held air and conducted himself that day, a good broadcaster. And the phrase that will always stick with me is he said on 9-11, he said, say a prayer, America. And he just let the he let it hang. And he knew what to do, which was not screaming and yelling, but let the moment hang. And he that was a real standout moment. He's a stud. He's a great, great journalist. Okay, so it's fair to say that. So let's say by let's say by 2004. Talk radio is still very potent. Fox is now but Fox is now sort of at the center. This is this is right before I joined Fox. And, and Fox was definitely sort of at the center of the discussion. As, as it remains. <laughs> as, as it remains. But the role is shifting, right? Yeah. The Internet and social media has attrited a lot of that, yeah. and there's outside stuff. How was Donald Trump mm-hmm. able to leverage the conservative media world as effectively as he did? He absolutely flipped it, <laughs> he flipped it over, sure. stomped on it, and made it his own. Talk about that. Well, I think one way to understand Trump is that he's always been a media figure. Right. It's all performance, and he's exceptionally good at it. And so from when he made his debut kind of on the national stage in the 1980s, he's portraying this character, Donald Trump. He's portraying the mogul. He He was like the idea of what you know it's so funny to me of the excess of the 80s yeah yeah but like you know for those of us who kind of live in these elite circles you're like oh trump is so tacky but for like you know average americans he's like their idea of what a rich person is yeah uh with all the gold and the marble and all your name on the plane yeah totally i mean ivana trump who just recently deceased i mean that brought back some memories for me because oh. I remember the divorce and the. Do you um, remember the Pizza Hut commercial? I don't remember the Pizza Hut commercial. <laughs> yes, they after their divorce, they needed the, some cash. Yeah, and they that's did, a constant. Yeah, the, the, the constant, like, constant thing is where are we going to score <laughs> some getting cash? The money. We got to get our hands on some cash around here. But they did one where Pizza Hut and the fat guy always has to bring up food, but they had just introduced <laughs> stuffed crust pizza. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Which, of course, is one of the great lines from Seinfeld when Elaine says that she's got to get the stuffed crust pizza. Why? Jerry, do you know how long it will be before they come up with another way to get cheese into pizza? Do you <laughs> understand? So the Pizza Hut's joke was eat it from the eat the crust first. Mm-hmm. So the two of them have a fake argument to highlight <laughs> their brutal and incredibly bitter and vicious oh. divorce for yucks. I'm going on YouTube. Please, please, enjoy, please uh, do enjoy. Yeah, and then, so... Trump is making appearances on the Howard Stern show, right? He, his, he, his personal, one of the funniest things he ever said, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, one of the funniest things he ever said, which was terrible for a presidential candidate, but hilarious as a, a shock jock guest, that avoiding venereal diseases in the 1970s was his personal Vietnam. That was his Vietnam. He didn't serve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's Trump. Yes. And, you know, we kind of finding his way into whatever media property he can, he, you know, he has that cameo in Home Alone 2 that the Canadian government tried to censor a few years ago because, gosh, the sight of Trump, I guess, sends them into fits. On the um, phone with the New York Post, probably every... Oh, what well, was so, his... So he yeah. was on the phone with Fox and Friends. Yes. that And that was his kind of entree into Fox World, was he's friends with Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News Channel, and he just begins... And this is at the same time that he becomes really famous, which is through his celebrity apprentice and apprentice franchises on NBC. And he starts calling in every week. It's a weekly segment where Donald calls in. Now he lives 
six blocks. Right. It's from, right there. From Fox right Central. There. He, he could walk. But but it's important that you show how important you are by the fact that they're airing your phone call. Right. And You're that's in a bathroom. You know, right. That's when you know you've made it is that they don't – it's television. It's a visual medium. But they don't even care if you're physically there, right? So he's he becomes part of that – kind of Fox cast of characters, the Fox and Friend cast of characters pretty early on in this century. I would say the other thing that is important to his rise, though, he quickly understands virality. Mm. And so if you recall the Anthony Weiner scandals. Tragically, I do. Yes. I mean, there's so many of them. But the original ones from 2011, which led to his resignation. and the where he put pictures of his genitals on the Internet? I think it was that one, yes. That was uh, a bad one. And then that led to that crazy press conference where the founder of Breitbart.com, Andrew Breitbart, yes. actually commandeered the podium. Oh, talk about great moments in right-wing media well, history. So there's a Trump connection because at that time, Trump released some type of video. And I'm not sure what even the me- format was, but it was just a direct-to-camera. He was sitting in his office in Trump Tower, and he just said something about, like, Democrats— no perverts. No perverts. Like Anthony Weiner, no perverts. I was there for that. And it went wild. It and it just Wait, showed... you were at the press conference? I was. It was at CPAC. You kept calling Weiner a pervert. Yeah, well, oh, so yeah, this yeah. video can, came came out of that, or I was yeah. around the same, but it showed it, it, how... Was, it was just a few people in a little room, but he was hilarious. Yeah, that was the same one where he had, and I want to talk about Breitbart a little bit, but that's where he had the megaphone and was yelling at Occupy Wall Street on people to stop raping people. You're talking about Breitbart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Not Trump. Trump's yeah. not. So I'm, talking about, yeah. I'm talking about Trump and um, and Wiener. And, and that video, the the, share, the the shareable quality. Yes. I don't know if I just made up a word. But that, too, kind of is a preview of how Trump would use social media in for 2016 sure. to just kind of dominate the media landscape. For sure, for sure. Let's go take just one pass at Breitbart. It's not for nothing that Steve Bannon— is such a major figure in the Trump story. Steve Bannon, who was running Breitbart after Andrew Breitbart's death. Yes. Steve Bannon, who was friend. Well, can I ask a yeah, quick, yeah, yeah. quick question for you? It seemed to me being a part of it. I was at National Review covering all of this. You were at Beacon running it, that Trump brought out a lot of tensions among these various conservative media outlets where the National Review and the Wall Street Journal had had a very close relationships with re- the Republican White Houses, and they were like able to kind of whisper their priorities and go have interviews with the Republican yeah. presidents. And Trump kind of turned that upside down and brought these tensions out. Even Fox had had like, you know, this favored powerful position and Trump in that Megyn Kelly uh, debate was no, able to show them that Trump like, actually I control Fox. You don't control like you're not going to use Fox as a tool to control me and so on and so forth. Anyhow, can you talk a little bit about these tensions and like how the conservative media landscape changed as a result of tr- uh, the power Trump exercised? Sure. I mean, so I think you're right that, that you know, by the by the time you get to 2016, there is a conservative establishment in Washington, D.C. that's been building up since the Reagan administration in the 80s. And there are well-established conservative media outlets. And the National Review is in New York, but has a D.C. presence. The Wall Street Journal editorial pages are in New York, but they have close D.C. connections. The Weekly Standard is here in D.C. Fox News Channel, New York and D.C., and they have relationships, as you say, Eliana, with Republican presidents, with 
the leadership on Capitol Hill. It's the weekly standard that dubs Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, and Eric Cantor the young guns, right? Which is now the Kevin McCarthy pack where he goes out and recruits. W used to have conservative journalists come in. He, his nickname for Charles Krauthammer and Bill Crystal were the bomber boys. They're always, <laughs> they're always trying to get him to bomb Iran. So anyway, so they're there and they're there. You know, that's the, that's the thing. That's good. Trump doesn't care about any of that. Trump no. doesn't like the, the conservative establishment. Trump is running against it. Trump thinks that they're part of the problem. That's why America needs to be and that they were mean to, And they were mean to him. They didn't take him seriously. Yeah, they were mean to him. So, that, so, uh, so the first big interview he starts giving is to Matt Boyle of Breitbart and the, the Breitbart universe, right, <sighs> is very critical to his. And by the way, Breitbart content, huge Facebook engagement. Yes. At that time, huge presence. And right? I know, and Eliana, you'll remember this. Were they credibly accused of inflating their numbers? That there would like, I remember they got, they got, they got banged for it, for buying followers and puffing stuff up. But definitely, even with that, the Breitbart phenomenon that you could feel in 2016, going into the, I could, I could, being a target of it, fo- working at Fox, and Fox was a big target of Breitbart, you could feel the energy around Breitbart and what was going on. Sure. And it was like the, this very adversarial, they came after my boss, Bill Salmon, because his daughter worked for Marco Rubio and alleged like yeah. all they sorts of like stuff. They were like a real, they were a force because they decided like, we are going to cover the right uh, we're on the right. We're going to cover the right. We're going to antagonize the yes. elites on the right. They were obsessed with Paul Ryan. They were covering they Paul a, Ryan a from a conservative That's perspective. That's Bannon gave and, it a mission. Yep. Totally. And they, you know, Breitbart was interested in the media, Andrew himself. And he was very effective covering the media and Democrats. Bannon was obsessed with covering the elites on the right. And beyond that, I remember they were out there covering Dave Bratt, who knocked off Eric Cantor. For sure. Like nobody was paying attention to that race. What was the name of the reporter? And, the and woman who covered immigration I think stuff. it was Julia, Julia Hahn, who then goes she on to work, work in the at White the White House. House. But, but like, perfect. that race really put them on the map because they had been out there covering this guy and, like, nobody was paying attention to that race. And they had been, for, they'd been plumping for Paul Ryan's challenger, who had some issues. Paul uh, Nealon. Yeah, yeah, Paul yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you remember that? I'm telling you, I need... I need you with me everywhere You'd be I go. Surprise! What I forget. I'm well, the, the secret is selective, selective listening. To success for any father is selective memory and selective listening. This is the key. This is the key. This is the way. So Trump ends up really defining him, himself against these established media outlets and figures. I'll give you an example. The day he debuts in June of 2015, a special report on Fox News Channel has their all-star panel and the most prominent figure on that panel was the syndicated columnist Charles Krauthammer, who says that, you know, Trump, uh, you know, he's a rodeo clown. He has zero chances. Trump starts going after Krauthammer. Oh, and the, the, the weekly, the Krauthammer's collection, things that matter had just come out in paperback. Trump tweets out something like things that matter by Charles Krauthammer. Now in paperback book sucks. And Charles would joke that that's he wanted to put that on the blurb, and then he would say, "Okay, fine, I re- I repent, I take back the the clown show, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, no, I, I take back. So internally, and Charles was my cherished friend, and internally, it was real anguish about what to do because Steve Hayes and Jonah had really gone hard. I remember just as my own vignette in this, where I was at that time, I was doing Stuart Varney's show. 
and we were, I was on to talk about other things, and I'm sitting on set in New York with Stuart, who's charming and wonderful to be on television with, and I'm on Stuart's show, and they're like, yeah, well, Trump, I guess, is going to make the formal announcement, so we may we may dip in on that while you're here, and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever, like one more candidate, and I knew from the beginning that we would not cut out of that or break out no of it. No network did. Because it was so amazing I to came see. back to the Free Beacon offices. I had been in New York the previous night, so I'm in Penn Station that morning before the announcement, and I noticed all these people coming in from Jersey with Trump paraphernalia. I was like, what is this? So I take the train, and I arrive back in the Free Beacon offices just as he's 10 minutes into the speech. And we have a bank of televisions at the Free Beacon, about nine, 10 televisions that are all brought, always on with the different cable channels. Were your offices in what I assume is now Stark Industries, where Eliana keeps her office perched above the city of Washington? Yes, that's like, where our offices were. That you could and release every drones. single television in that office had Trump on it. And that's the way it was yep. until January of 2021. That's how. That's the, the power he has. And, and so that, that would explain a lot of that what, what Trump did to the right media was the same thing he did to the whole media, which yeah, is they couldn't it. stop. Yeah, he ruined <laughs> he it. He ruined it because they couldn't stop watching. They couldn't stop, stop broadcasting watching. it. Yeah. I think, I, think he, I think he's lost his, a lot of his ability to surprise. But I remember, Eliana, you've heard me talk about this, his, where he talked about Ben Carson, he, where his accusation of Ben Carson was that he was lying about almost murdering a person. That he said, and and he he's walking around on the stage, and he's like, he says, you hit him with the belt buckle. The belt buckle deflected the knife. Look, I got a belt buckle right here. And he's walking up and down. He's he's in like churchy, Mc, that clip. churchy McChurchington. Yes, let's here. Let's listen to it right now. He took a knife, and he went after a friend, and he lunged. He lunged that knife into the stomach of his friends. But lo and behold. It hit the belt. It hit the belt. And the knife broke. Give me a break. Give me a break. Give me a break. The knife broke. Let me tell you, I'm pretty good at this stuff. So, I have a belt. Somebody hits me where the belt's going in because the belt moves this way. It moves this way. It moves that way. He hit the belt buckle. Anybody, anybody have a knife? You want to try it on me? So he's doing this, I think, in Fort Dodge, Iowa, and the people, the look, the look on the faces of the people. And so, if you're CNN, you're like, "Oh, this is great because it's bad for the Republicans, and it's bad, and it's great TV, right? We're going to elevate this guy who's a nut, and it's going to be bad in the same way." You could always tell this is mean. But you could always tell who was soon to drop out of a Republican primary process because you're like, oh, is Rick Santorum on MSNBC again? Is he on again? And so they're like, hey, say something crazy. Would you like to come on and say something crazy that we can use against your party? But anyway, I guess that explains it all, right? That Trump was too good at it, having honed his skills as John Barron feeding the New York Post, going on Howard Stern, learning all that stuff, and he was just too good at it. I have, like, a kind of final, you know, I don't want to rush us to the exits or anything, but, you know, a question for Matt. 
if you had your druthers and you could will into existence or work your will over, you know, conservatives in the media, like what would you what would you like to see? What do you think would be healthy? Would it be more conservatives in at mainstream outlets? Would it be a new type of conservative outlets? Like what would you what would you like to see that doesn't exist? Well, it's a great question. And why? Yeah, I I don't really have a quick answer for you. I, I I'm a magazine guy. Uh, I would like there to be something like the Weekly Standard again. I sometimes get people come up to me on the street or and just after an appearance or something and say how much they miss the Weekly Standard. At the same time, I'm, I'm not sure what the market is, and I'd say that we have we have plenty of platforms. I'm less concerned about the number of platforms than I am about the content within the platforms. <laughs> I would like I would like more serious content, and that 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 could mean just like horse race politics from a conservative perspective. It could mean thoughtful analysis from a conservative perspective. It could mean some humor. But I, I don't, I'm not, what I don't know is what shape that would take. This like, we're talking on a podcast. I mean, there's so many good podcasts. There's plenty of them, but there are also some that are just unhealthy for, for conservatism and for American democracy. So I'm, I'm more interested in what people are saying than where they're saying it from these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I subscribe to the dispatch. The it's, it's hard. And I think, I guess my final question for you is has, the cycle of conservative hatred for the press. I, I guess in the war between the right and the press, the right won because the press ultimately, the business model failed, everything, fa- <laughs> it failed. And there was a triumphalism, I think, in the Trump era of like, ha, 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 see? And certainly that goes back to Dan Rather and the fall, uh, which is you, you well, hear I think the right one, because the press does not exercise the influence over the right, right that they wish they uh, yeah, but, could. I mean, the irony is that stories. in winning, the press today is more like the right's caricature of the yes, press yes. than ever before. So, you know, the truth is the right could criticize the press uh, for many of those decades. But the truth was many of the people in charge of these institutions, they were liberal, but they were also kind of, you know, they took they took the kind of the canons of their profession very seriously. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, we have to hear out what the other side has to say, or we need to give, you know, Charles Krauthammer a column in Time Magazine for twenty three years or something. That voice is important. We need to include it. Whereas now, the press believes in that's you know, violence. That's violence. Silence is violence, and speech is violence. So <laughs> I'm not sure what you're gonna have to do. And there, and there are places. But, I think the New York Times does it is doing a job. The Times is trying. To, yeah, yeah that, trying you know, to do it. Um, I mean, they're trying to do it, but like, oftentimes it, they'll pick the person. They get the who, participation award. Yeah. Of and they'll, oftentimes they'll pick the person who like makes the right seem scary, the, the most scary. Sometimes, yeah. You know, sometimes, um, but Ross Douthit does a does does manful work over there. Ross is ca- there. carrying the story and doing all that. I, I want to thank you for a lot of things, but before I let you go, I want to thank you for what you did with the Washington Free Beacon and what Eliana continues to do with the Washington Free Beacon. Thank you for leaving the Free Beacon, Matt. So she could have and a sweet job. Yes, yes. <laughs> she could have your awesome office. But that what you did there and what Eliana continues to do there is to train young conservatives 
to be journalists, right? All of these young people who come in that you set a standard for that said that, well, we're going to be fun. We're going to do interesting stuff. We're going to do whatever. Keeping a baseline standard for journalistic instruction and your heirs are everywhere, right? The, the people who worked for you, people who work for you, Eliana, and work for the Beacon have gone on into all of these other places. And one day when you're old, you'll see that some of them are at the New York Times or they're already, already, are. Are. They're already there. Look, And see? NBC. They already yep. are. See? So thank see? you. Of course, so, I have to go write a column for Eliana now. Uh, she's a she's a taskmaster. Thank you so much. I, Thank you, Matthew. I, Everybody should buy the right. Yeah, I cannot recommend this book strongly enough. Your friends in West Virginia, they need to go buy it. That's yes. everybody in West Virginia should, should go buy. buy the after right. they True buy fancy. Broken News, available everywhere on August twenty third. Buy two copies in case you wear out the first one. But it's an exceptionally well researched, clear book, and I'm grateful for it as I am grateful for your friendship, sir. That is all the time we have left. For the news about the news, if you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.